listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. the great Frederick Douglass wrote a narrative of his own life that became one of the greatest catalysts for the abolitionist movement. In this memoir, he he recounts his brutal experiences in slavery so that outsiders to that institution could get a sense of just how difficult it was. But one of the most striking and sobering parts of the book is Douglas's comparison between Christianity and what he calls slaveholding religion. The faith that allowed self-proclaimed Christians to not only support his enslavement, but to provide intellectual cover for its legitimacy and to participate in his enslavement without any felt conflicts. That's what he called slave religion. And this is an extensive quote of Douglas that is worth our close attention. Douglas says this. This is in the appendix to his biography. This is what he says. Listen carefully if you would. Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Never was there a clearer case of stealing the uniform of the court of heaven to serve the devil in. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show, together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. Listen, we have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood clotted cow skin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The man who robs me of my earnings at the end of each week meets me as a class leader on Sunday morning to show me the way of life and the path of salvation. He who sells my sister for purposes of prostitution stands forth as the pious advocate of purity. He he who proclaims it a religious duty to read the Bible denies me the right of learning to read the name of God who made me. He who is the religious advocate of marriage robs whole millions of its sacred influence and leaves them to the ravages of wholesale pollution. The warm defender of the sacredness of the family relation is the same that scatters whole families, 
sundering husbands and wives, parents and children, sisters and brothers, leaving the hut vacant and the hearth desolate. We see the thief preaching against theft and the adulterer against adultery. We have men sold to build churches, women sold to support the gospel, and babes sold to purchase Bibles for the poor heathen, all for the glory of God and the good of souls. The slave auctioner's bell and the church-going bell chime in with each other, and the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave trade go hand in hand together. The slave prison and the church stand near each other. The clanking of fetters and the rattling of chains in the prison and the pious psalm and solemn prayer in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealers in bodies and souls of men erect their stand in the presence of the pulpit and they mutually help one another. The dealer gives his blood-stained gold to support the pulpit, and the pulpit, in return, covers this infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Whether he knew it or not, Frederick Douglass was giving his contemporary audience the essential message of the book of James, that a faith claim and genuine faith are two different things. James shows us that genuine faith is more than a matter of simply acknowledging the right concepts or theology. It is right living in accordance with those concepts. And as easy as it is to look back at slaveholding religion and to condemn it, to to throw our approbation upon it, to heap aspersions upon that institution, the more difficult work for you and I is to turn our analysis to ourselves and to ask the question where there may be an obvious hypocrisy in our faith. So today, we begin a new series in the book of James. In the book of James, we are going to be up until the week before Palm Sunday. We are going to spend some time Digging into James, and and we're going to approach the opening of this book today through two points. I want you to see God's purpose in your trials, and I want you to seek God's wisdom in your trials. I want you to see God's purpose in your trials, and I want you to seek God's wisdom in your trials. So let's look at our first point. I want you to see God's purpose in your trials. Now, if you have any familiarity with the Bible or any familiarity with the book of James, you may have heard it said that the book of James is a book about works. However, James's great concern is with faith. James's great concern with faith is what drives the entire book. His concern with works stems from his concern with the genuineness of faith. For James... It's as impossible to separate works from true faith as it is to separate heat and light from fire. The two cannot be separated. His focus is not so much on converting his audience to the right ideas, but to see them living the right kind of life. 
He assumes that the audience already accepts the truth of the Christian message and the lordship of Jesus. He assumes this. But he addresses the disconnection between profession and behavior, which calls into question the genuineness of one's profession. I want you to see something really important as we work through this book, and it's this. James wants to move us from an insight-based model of discipleship to a practice-based model of discipleship. And that is to say that discipleship, growth in the faith, cannot be reduced to learning the right theology or getting the right concepts in your head. Mastery of material. It's not an insight-based model that James gives us. It's a practice-based model. We are to measure the legitimacy and the maturity of our faith based upon our practices, our actions, our habits. This is essential to what James is doing for his audience. He moves us away from the insight-based model into the practice-based model. In verse 1, we see the beginning, right? The book of James, it was a circular letter, which is to say it wasn't written to a specific individual congregation like many of Paul's letters. It was written to be passed around to to multiple congregations. And it was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. James was one of the most respected leaders in the first century church, particularly the church in Jerusalem. James was ethnically Jewish, which is incredibly significant for our understanding of this book. If you gloss over James's Jewishness, you will not get significant portions of this book. You need to recognize it. You need to appreciate the contribution that James makes to our faith, largely shaped by his ethnic rearing in the Jewish context. That's important. And Christians over history have often failed on this very point. Egregiously so. But we need to correct that. We need to start to value what it is that the Jewishness of the scriptures brings to us for our understanding of the person and work of Christ and the life of faith. Already in his very first sentence, check it out, James identifies himself as Jacob in the Greek text. His name, if you're reading the Greek text, his name is Jacob, okay? Which comes into English as James. Like, it's a whole, we can talk offline about why that is, right? (laughs) His name is Jacob in the Greek text, and he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Which, which was a way of referring to the scattering of ethnic Jews to regions outside of Jerusalem after the exile. This, this is how he frames the beginning of his letter. And it's uncertain whether James was using this language to address Jewish Christians or to use a Jewish framework to address and orient an ethnically diverse audience to their roots. Either way, I want us to recognize the Jewishness of this book from start to finish. It's really important. And after this one sentence introduction and a one word greeting, James ain't beating around the bush here. He doesn't do all the pleasantries and salutations. Essentially, James says, sup. Now let's get to it, right? Like That's what James does. He starts right in to help us to see God's purpose 
in our trials, our first point. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And right from the start, we see that James is a very countercultural person. He has a countercultural perspective. It sounds crazy in our American ears to count trials and tests as joy, right? Right? You tell the truth, shame the devil. You know it sounds crazy, right? Count it joy. Ooh, great, I love it. I'm, I'm hurting. Great, awesome, right? Now, it sounds absurd. It's countercultural right from jump. It sounds crazy in our American ears. We experience spiritual test anxiety, don't we? But James is going to press this very issue of testing in a variety of situations throughout the whole book. Testing around how we handle money, testing around how we use our words, testing around how we treat people based on social status. In fact, this first chapter of James introduces all of the themes that are going to come throughout the rest of the book. This is sort of like a prologue of sorts, right? He introduces all the themes to come, and they're all trials and tests of faith. So how might we get a better understanding of the relationship between trials or tests, faith, and joy? How do we put all this together? When it comes to trials or testing, James's primary focus is on the internal dynamics rather than the external dynamics. He's not thinking about the external pressures or persecution so much as the challenges of being lured away from obedience by the duplicity of our own hearts. That's the nature of, of the trial and test that James is talking about. It's the internal that he is focused on. Trials or testing is when you come to forks in the road of life where you have to make a decision between loyalty to God or loyalty to the spirit of the age. Testing shows up in all different kinds of situations and scenarios. It's constant, daily, in fact. You come to a fork in the road and you have to make a decision. Do I go loyalty to God or do I loyalty to the spirit of the age? Do I follow God or do I follow my heart? By the way, those are usually not the same. Usually, as a rule, the heart, Jeremiah says, is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And it's the height of pride to think that your own heart will be reliable. It's pride. This is what trials and testing are. And these trials push toward a verdict, don't they? They push toward a verdict, whether in a courtroom, like we waited for the trials of the murders that happened last year. We waited. We were longing. The trial was there, but we we're longing for the verdict. Or whether it's the trial for a, a vaccine in, in a clinic, we, we waited for those COVID vaccine. Well, some of us waited for the COVID vaccine to come out, right? We were waiting for the verdict to come out. And it's the same when it comes to faith. It pushes toward a verdict. It pushes toward a verdict. What does the evidence say about a defendant's guilt or innocence? 
What does the evidence say about a vaccine's safety and effectiveness or danger and ineffectiveness? And what does the evidence say about a professing Christian's faithfulness and integrity or unfaithfulness and corruption? Trials push toward a verdict. The reality of both true faith and false faith are only revealed by testing. It's the only way to get to the bottom of what's really going on in your heart. Testing. It can only be revealed by testing. One of the great urgencies in Christian spirituality is a sober understanding of where you really are. As opposed to where you imagine yourself to be when you take your good intentions into consideration and grade yourself on a curve. This, this is very different, right? To get down to the reality, not what you wish you were or imagine yourself to be, but where you really are. It's like stepping on a scale. You get that scale, you're like... thing is off. It's like like 15 pounds off. I don't know what's wrong with it, right? No, it's revealing what's going on, right? It's just telling you what you're working with, right? That's what trials do to you. And this understanding comes only with testing. When we are confronted with situations in which we can either demonstrate our professed faith through action or betray our professed faith through disloyalty. James tells us that when we are repeatedly tested and we demonstrate our faith through action time and again, it produces steadfastness or endurance or durability. And this steadfastness or endurance reveals health and wholeness. By implication, when our faith is repeatedly tested and we betray our professed faith, Time and again, it reveals instability, what James calls double-mindedness. And we're going to come to that in a bit. But what about joy in trials, right? You didn't think I was going to leave that one, right? What about this joy in trials? Verse 3, this joy is rooted in the fact that your trials are not random nor out of control. They are part of of God's purpose. This is a joy that comes from the growing endurance and integrity of your faith when you remain loyal to God in trials through your motives and doxological intent. It's a joy in witnessing your own growth and maturity, the joy of recognizing how God is at work in you. It's a joy in recognizing God's purpose in your trials, the purpose of beautifying your life, growing you up, transforming you from one degree of glory to the next. If the thought of being made into the likeness of Jesus at any cost does not bring you joy, nothing in this life will. Nothing in this life will. It can entertain you for a little while, but it will never give you joy. But there is also joy to be found in trials because they remove self-deception concerning the nature of our faith. Trials remove self-deception. 
If you thought you were humble <laughs> and you are brought to the test and your pride rears up, oh, well, now you are seeing what you're really working with. You're realizing at this point that you are self-deceived. For those with true faith, testing is like going to the doctor for tests and learning that everything in your body looks good. For false faith, it's like going to the doctor for testing and learning that you have cancer that's been caught early enough to treat, but you need to take action. The doctors are only revealing what's going on in your body. And so the tests of your faith are only revealing what's going on in your heart. It's not that there is no aspect of sorrow in our trials. All joy in this text does not mean exclusively joy. It means intensively joy. Consider it an intense joy, not joy to the exclusion of lament and sorrow, right? There's something unique about the Christian faith that allows you to simultaneously lament and have joy. Something rich there. All joy doesn't speak to the exclusivity of joy, but the intensity of joy. Nevertheless, James is telling us that when we see God's purpose in our trials, we can meet those trials with joy. But there's another crucial need that we have when it comes to trials. And this brings us to our second point, where we seek God's wisdom in our trials. I want you to seek God's wisdom in your trials. And this shows up in verses 5 through 8. When I studied music in undergrad, I had friends who were incredible classically trained musicians. They were high caliber. They, they could play incredibly difficult pieces if they had the sheet music in front of them to spell out every note. They could read music like I read English. Like that's, that's how good they were. I'd look at the sheet. There would be notes everywhere on the sheet. And they'd be like, and I'm like, how does your brain do that? I don't know. How are you seeing all of that at the same time? My eyes don't do that. They're like, I don't know. They're like iguanas. Their eyes doing this thing, right? It used to astonish me that they could do that. Like they were incredible musicians who could play anything that was on a sheet of paper in front of them. But they had no idea how to play jazz. Jazz was foreign to them because it's improvisational. Jazz gives you a basic roadmap of the chords, but it's all about spontaneous creation in the moment with the people you're playing with or sometimes by yourself. It's not about playing every single note on a sheet of paper. It's about improvisation in the moment. And I think this is the experience of many Christians in times of trial. They know how to faithfully follow the black and white commands that are clearly spelled out in Scripture. But when it comes to the gray areas of life that require wisdom, they struggle. They think, just give me the sheet music. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've had people come up to me and effectively say, can you give me the sheet music, please? I can't do jazz. I need some notes on the page. I need it black and white. Just tell me what to do. The improvisation that wisdom requires is often confounding. And here's the thing. About 10% of the Christian life 
is covered by black and white laws that are clearly spelled out. For example, thou shall not steal. Clear? Got it? Got it? Good. Right? About 10% of life is covered by the black and white of Scripture. And 90% of the Christian life requires the improvisation of wisdom. For example, Proverbs 26, 4 through 5 reads like this. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And we think, which is it? Do I answer a fool according to his folly or do I not answer a fool according to his folly? And the answer is only wisdom can tell you which is the right move in the situation. Only wisdom can get you there. What we see is that the Christian life is, we like to treat it more like science. And it's more like art. It's an art and a science. There are hard and fast things, but then there, there are things that are situational, right? If, you, if, if we get a chance to go out for a cup of coffee, I'll talk to you about triperspectivalism. All right? That gets into the situational, the ideal, like the, how Christian theology and Christian life actually works together. Okay? We can talk about that another time over coffee or another kind of beverage. <laughs> it's an art and a science, right? And when we hear this, that we're not largely good at wisdom and most of life is wisdom, we think, oh, great. Now, how am I supposed to get that? <laughs> And James replies in verse 5. Okay, check it out. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James tells us that if we need wisdom in a situation, we need only ask God for it. Now, I'm going to give you a, a funny and sad, all at the same time, just simple illustration of this. I was working on this sermon until 3.30 in the morning last, this morning. I see, I can't even think right now. I'm, on, I'm, I'm running on Holy Spirit energy right now, okay? But what's funny is I was banging my head trying to pull this thing together. And there were multiple times yesterday where I'm sitting there trying to muscle this thing, and I'm like, Lord, will you give me wisdom about how to frame this? And within five minutes, boom, I was like, that's funny what you did there. See, you tried to teach me how to live my own sermon while I'm writing my sermon. I see what you did there. It happened to me half a dozen times yesterday. That's how hard-headed I am. I was stunned that last night I was trying. I was like, oh, yeah, again. Lord, will you give me wisdom about how Boom. And he answered. It's true. Like, it showed up. You need only ask. God loves to generously give wisdom to all who ask. He doesn't roll his eyes and breathe a deep sigh like we do when our kids pound us with, with requests. That's not how God does. God is not like you. He's better than you. <laughs> and that's good news. God loves to give us wisdom, not just as a one-time shot, but over and over and over again. And he does so generously because it's his character to give. It's his character to give. But James wants us to take this to heart. Listen, parents, 
Are you banging your head against the wall with how to negotiate life right now? Are you asking God for wisdom every day? Seriously, throughout the day, ask. He will give it. Kids, are you trying to figure out life and you're not sure and you feel confused? Are you trying to figure out who you are? Are you trying to figure out friend groups and what you should do in your life? Ask God for wisdom. He'll answer you. Teachers, you trying to figure out how to deal with the problems of doing your vocation in these difficult days? Ask. Ask for wisdom. Are you trying to figure out how to be a blessing to your neighbors because you feel stumped and you've been trying to muscle it and you've been trying to work off of your own intellectual power in order to figure it all out? Ask for wisdom. I want it to become the impulse of our community that when we wake up in the morning, we begin to just ask and ask and ask to come to the inexhaustible fountain of wisdom so that we can gain the skill that we need for life. That's what wisdom is. It is skill for living in God's world and God's way. That's, that's wisdom. It's, it's life skills. That's wisdom. And that's what we need most. We cannot fit all of life into the black and white paradigm. We got to live by faith and wisdom in the situational. But James qualifies this statement. He tells us, ask God. Do you need wisdom? Ask God. But then he qualifies the statement in verses 6 through 8. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, this could be understood to mean that it's up to believers to convince themselves that God will give them what they ask for if they are somehow able to eliminate the doubts from their head. That is not what James means. This is, this is not what James means. The faith required for asking is simple trust in the character and promises of God. That's what James means. It doesn't mean that you have absolute certainty about every doctrine in the Christian book. That's not what James is talking about, the no doubt phrase. He is talking about divided loyalty. He's talking about the asking from a place of divided loyalty. It's a wavering of commitment or loyalty to God. An indecision or hesitancy that questions the integrity of God. One foot in, one foot out. Sitting on the fence, hedging your bets. However you want to phrase it, James is saying if you are coming to God from that kind of on the fence position, you shouldn't suppose that you receive anything from the Lord. The doubter is depicted, the, 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 the wavering, sitting on the fence, hedging your bets person is depicted as a wave of the sea that is blown by the wind, tossed back and forth. A wave is passive, susceptible to manipulation because it has no shape of its own. 
It's always shifting, never solid, without foundation. The with no doubting in verse 6 does not mean that you should believe anything that anyone says. It means that one should in no way hold back from commitment or divide one's loyalties. To put it in the framing of Jesus, ask in faith. Because if you ask while trying to serve two masters, you must not suppose that you will receive. Throughout this book, what you're going to see is the way that Jewish sages operated. If you read through the Gospels and then you read through James, you're going to be like, yo, it seems like James is basically just transporting Jesus into his book. But here's the thing. That's not how Jewish wisdom worked. The way that Jewish wisdom worked was not to quote other sages or allude to other sages. It was to imbibe all that the sages had to say and then to create your own book of wisdom based upon the authority of your own experience with God. And that's what James wants for each of us, for us to become sages, to embody the wisdom, to absorb the wisdom, so that we can then bring that wisdom out for the people around us and live into that life of wisdom ourselves. James may have, may have had in mind people who were not taking the personal work of Christ seriously or those who did believe Jesus was the Messiah but were clinging to their former habits. They were attracted to Jesus but were vacillating. Here's what's interesting. There is something so, so, so powerful and profound in the writing of this book by James, and it's this. When James, you may hear James like coming hard, like, yo, James, can you like dial it down a little bit? Like, I feel like you're headhunting me. But here's the thing. James is not giving this, this, this sharp, direct word from a place of, of self-righteousness or condescension. James himself knew what it was like to be a double-minded man. <laughs> Do you realize that he's, he's, he's speaking it from a place of compassion, but urgency? How do I know that James was a double-minded man at one time? Because James was the half-brother of Jesus, which is to say that after Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had other children, and James was one of those children. So he's a half-brother of Jesus because James was not conceived by the Holy Spirit. He grew up seeing Jesus, observing Jesus. But we are, we're actually told in John chapter 7, verse 5, explicitly that not even his own brothers believed in him. Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him, and that includes James. James knew what it was like to be a double-minded man, uncertain about Jesus. But the beauty part is that James is coming with this urgency. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the resurrected Jesus, his resurrected brother, came to him in the brilliance of his glorification, appearing to James. James is singled out specifically and named. And James is coming with this urgency to us to, to, to stop being double-minded, to stop dividing our loyalties from a place of confidence in the gospel. 
and in the truth of God revealed in Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus risen from the dead. And so he's urging us to move away from double-mindedness to a place of faith and wisdom, seeking to embrace what God is doing in our lives and to grow up in the faith by embodying it, not just thinking the right ideas. I think that's a powerful testimony. We need to remember that all through the book of James. James, when he comes to us with the stern word, he's trying to put the smelling salts under your nose if you're sleeping. He's trying to wake you up. Here, here's my clothes. Yesterday, I had the privilege and opportunity to attend the homegoing service of my dear friend and neighbor, Jason. He was close to his grandfather, like I was to mine. And so I drove out to Annapolis to the homegoing service at an awesome black church in Annapolis. And my eyes started leaking as soon as I walked in because they were playing I Shall Wear a Crown. And I came in, I saw Jason, dapped him up, showed him some love, expressed my condolences, and I went and sat in the back and I was observing. And to hear the testimony of this Wonderful man's life, Mr. Pratt, was stunning. 92 years of faith and service and love for his people and his community. And I thought, every time I'm at a funeral, every time I'm at a homegoing service, I think, Lord, help me to finish the race with my faith intact because no one is guaranteed that without daily communion with the Lord and praying that God would give grace for us to be the real deal. And then the thought hit me. This is what James is trying to bring us to. So that on that day, when you're laid in front of your people, they will be able to give testimony to the beauty of faith in your life, to be able to say that you were the real deal. You weren't a performer or a hypocrite. You weren't a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways, or a double-minded woman, unstable in all your ways. You knew him, and you lived like it, and you loved like it, and you denied yourself like Jesus is real like he died for your sins and rose from the dead, that their testimony would be that you came in on Sunday mornings and you worshiped with all your heart, no matter what was going on in your life, that you were always willing to put others ahead of yourself, that you were quick to repent and repair what you broke, that you knew how to treat people, that you were generous, even when it meant that you had to say no to things you cared about for yourself in order to say yes to others. A radical countercultural orientation to life in this world because of God. 
That's what I thought. And that's what I want for each of you. I don't want any of you to be self-deluded, to think that because you showed up at church every now and again or even every Sunday, that that was your salvation. No. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. If I could summarize what James is saying throughout this whole book, he's essentially saying this. My brother and Lord, who is the Messiah, he meant what he said. Take it to heart and live in light of that. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.